Well, it's great to see you all here this morning at the Christian Church of Essex Park, where we, of course, are disciples of Jesus to build generational, transformational disciples of Jesus. And I'm Pastor Aaron, and I'm uh, going to be leading you today uh, on a continued journey as we follow Jesus through his life and ministry. And today we have the beginning of Holy Week. But before we get to that, uh, this is a fifth Sunday, and every fifth Sunday our church likes to take a special offering for one of our missionaries or a need that we have in ministry. And this one's going to be a little special, and it's going to go on just a little bit further, but it's going to be for Valak and Luba Sini. And uh, those of you who have been here for a while know that, uh, that we've been supporting them for a very long time. Valak is the president of Trevisky Christian Institute, which happens to be the only uh, evangelical or non-Orthodox uh, theological training school that is licensed in any of the former Soviet states, and it's uh, pretty amazing. And they, um, they train up and send out workers into the kingdom uh, throughout the Central Asia and, uh, and uh, Eastern Europe and uh, doing some amazing work. Well, Valak wrote us, uh, wrote me an email, and it says this. It says, I have a request to share with you and the church. During all those years that I've been president of TCI, I have not asked our partners for help. But this spring, we had lots of rains, and the lower rooms of our house was flooded, and the laminated floors were badly damaged. Besides, the walls of the room got wet, and now there is mold in the plastering, and it's coming off the walls. Now, I need to do a big repair, but there's no money for it. I thought that I could write IDES, that's the organization that provides help that we're, we're part of, kind of like um, Red Cross. Uh, but I, th I was going to ask IDES for help, but TCI is already, uh, is, but TCI is helping Kyrsan Christian Church raise support through IDES uh, because there was a fire in that church. There is another problem. I work as a volunteer for six international projects, and the people here in Ukraine think I get a salary from all of these organizations, and that's why I cannot ask for help openly. Now, he's done some calculations. He's had uh, folks come in, and there's people, uh, family, friends, and the church going to do some of the work. But the, the price of the repairs is going to be around 15000 U.S. dollars, which is um, basically a year's salary. It's a lot of money. And so what we would like to do as our church, um, he's turning to us because we support him uh, directly and help pay part of his salary. And um, so we would like to take an offering and, and give him the best that we can and to send that to Valak and Luba so that they can have their home fixed. And for all of us who have floods in our homes, we know exactly what they are going through. So this is how we're going to be doing that. On our uh, your envelopes is in your, um, in your bulletin there. There's a place that you can write down there for Fifth Sunday. And if there's an amount that you would like to send to Valak and Luba, just write that amount and put your check in there. And 100% of those things, we're going to be gathering those, and we're going to be gathering those funds throughout the whole month, because I don't want to surprise, like, spring this on you. So we're going to be gathering those up throughout the month, and at the end of the month, we're going to be sending that to support uh, Valak and Luba, so they can have their home, uh, you know, in order. So it's, it's nice when you don't have mold when you're downstairs. Uh, something else uh, that is also happening, one of our brothers, uh, uh, Drew, and his wife, Ar um, Drew Armstrong, has a We've been praying for a house. That they had that temporary place that was awesome. Well, then finally got a more permanent place for them. And so it's an answer of prayer in Estes Park. You know what a big deal that is. Well, they have a moving day. That's going to be tomorrow and Tuesday, which are the lousy days for moving. But it is moving day. So uh, if there's five or six of you guys that could help out tomorrow, Tuesday, um, to help um, 
load and unload the truck, that would be fantastic. This is how I'd like you to tell me to do that, is you have a connection card here, and if you would write on there, you know, uh, move on there and just the telephone number you would like Drew to contact you at so he can get you details and connect with you, that would be uh, what we'd be asking to do. All right, so two ways to worship God with time and talent and, and treasure, I guess. So there you are. So now let's go on to let's following Jesus. And, of course, uh, part of our series, we do talk about uh, what does it mean to follow Jesus, and we would like to, you know, really listen to what Jesus had to say about that. And these are Jesus' words. This is why it's our memory verse for the series, Matthew 16, 24. I hope by now, uh, the 11th week in, it's really starting to sink in. But if not, you know, we've got a couple more weeks to go. Uh, so let's just practice. Here we go. Three, two, one. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Matthew 16, 24. He sounds so good. Let's just test ourselves. Here we go. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Matthew 16, 24. Awesome. Not that you need it because you guys sound phenomenal, but just in case you would like, there's a Bible memory verse that's, a, that's perforated. It's on the top of your connection card. Take that home as a tool of discipleship. All right. So we're going to be beginning uh, Holy Week today. We've gone all the way up three years into Jesus' ministry, got ready to start the fourth Passover. And uh, last week, Jesus was in, in Jericho, and he was making his way up to Jerusalem. And that's what we pick up today is he goes from Jericho, and he stops at Bethany, which uh, it's about a 15-mile hike, goes up in elevation, about a half-mile gain. It's a long walk. Probably would have done that on Friday because then... Saturday is Sabbath, and Jesus wouldn't have traveled on that day. So probably shows up there uh, Friday, and so and takes Saturday the Sabbath and rests uh, while he's there. Now he's two miles from Jerusalem. Bethany's the same place that he just raised Lazarus from the dead not long before that. And so this is going to be his home base for the final week of ministry. So the next thing we find, of course, Saturday he's resting. Then Sunday is we have Palm Sunday. That's what we know, of course, when Jesus was there, he didn't wake up and say, hey, it's Palm Sunday, right? It was, it was you know, the beginning of the week, and the first thing he does is he goes into uh, to Jerusalem. An interesting thing, and I found this uh, map online, and I thought it was great because it was clear. Uh, but what this doesn't show us is that there's actually uh, a more easy path into Jerusalem from Bethany, and Jesus doesn't take that. Instead, he goes through Bethphage, which is a, uh, would be a village that's on the top of Mount Olives, and I couldn't get a good enough picture. So next time we're in Israel, I'm definitely going to take a picture from Bethphage so you could see what it would look like. But it's basically the elevation. You're kind of coming up over a hill. And once you get to that point, it, uh, it drops down on the Mount of Olives. And you would see the, the whole city of Jerusalem and the temple right there. It's, it's really phenomenal. But anyway, he takes this, uh, this little strange route there. And uh, he stops at Bethphage. He sends two of his disciples ahead of him and says, hey, guys, uh, I need you to get me a donkey because uh, I'm going to ride that there. And if the guy there asks, what are you doing with my donkey? He says, my Lord needs it. And that's what happened. So God was working in advance. I don't know what let those guys know that Jesus needed that donkey, but they did. So he gets on the donkey at Bethphage. And that happens to fulfill a, a prophecy, which is so cool, uh, how detailed Jesus is, like how we know Jesus is the Messiah. Even little things like how he rides into Jerusalem is, is met. Right. And so uh, we find there it's uh, Zechariah nine and also Isaiah 62 uh, are the, the prophets of the, 
that saw this in advance, and it says, Say the daughters of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I think that's pretty amazing. So Jesus rides into uh, to Jerusalem, and uh, everyone's, of course, excited because there was, he's, there was a buzz, right? He's, here's the Messiah. He was staying in the very village. He just raised a guy from the dead. All of these things, right? And so the people were very excited because their, their idea of his coming would be this. It would be in power, and when he showed up in Jerusalem, he was going to go take his place on the throne, and he was going to be the priest king, right? He was going to throw out those lousy Romans. This was going to be the end of their troubles, and everybody was excited. So they got all up and down the, the street, and uh, they, they took off their coats, and they took palm branches, and they laid them on the ground so their, his royal donkey wouldn't have to walk even on the dirt, right? And then they're saying some really cool things there they said hosanna to the son of david blessed is the one who comes in the name of the lord hosanna in the highest heaven and if you're like me you're saying what does that mean (laughs) hosanna means save us they're saying god you're here and those lousy romans are inside Save us, save us. And then son of David, you're like, you are the Messiah, you are the king, man. It's time to, it's time to rumble, right? They're ready for Jesus to go, and they're pumping it up. Like, get in there. And he rides in to town, and he looks around at everything, but it was late, so he went home. <laughs> That's what happened. So then we get to Monday. They call it Holy Monday because there's no, no Monday in the history of the world that's been like this. And Jesus gets up early, and he, he walks in to Jerusalem, and he didn't have breakfast yet, and he sees this fig tree, and then we have this thing where he curses it. Well, um, I have a picture of one. There you go. I was like, what does a fig tree look like? I honestly had no idea. But they're apparently ubiquitous. They're all over Israel because our guide there kept talking about them. I'm going to have to go see one next time I'm there. That's what a fig tree looks like. Jesus walks by this fig tree, and it, and it wasn't seasoned for figs. Right? It says the scripture wasn't even seasoned for figs, but he looks at it, and there's not any figs there, and then he goes ahead and he curses. He says, may no one ever eat from this fruit of you again. And his disciples heard him say it, right? And they were like, well, that's weird. Jesus is in a bad mood, but he was actually making a point. See, in scripture and in the prophets of like Jeremiah and, and Joel and, and Micah, they talk about the kingdom of Israel and they use the fig tree as a way of describing it. So it's symbolic of the, of the nation. And you have the, the ritualistic worship that Jesus was just about ready to participate in again as they would go through this uh, uh, Passover, right? And it all looked very leafy and green, right? It looked like there was a lot of life in there, but there wasn't any fruit of righteousness. And God the Messiah was hungry for righteousness, and they were not ready in season or out of season. And so he uses that, I think, as a lesson for us. Anyway, he curses this tree, and he gets into Jerusalem, and the first thing he does is he cleans the temple again. That's the thing about those temples. He started, when he started his ministry early on, he, he cleansed the temple, right? At the very beginning, first year, he goes in and cleanses the temple, and now he's got to go cleanse it again. At the end, kind of bookends it, right? And uh, so he goes down there, and he drives out those that were in there, and he says, it's written. He said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers, and that's stronger language than the first time he cleared it out. We read about it in Luke, right? But the, this one, in Luke, he says, you know, it's supposed to be a, a holy place, a house of prayer, but, but you've turned it into a marketplace. Now he goes from a marketplace, he says, you've made it a den of robbers, of thieves. Because God wanted more 
than just people to, to use his religious uh, laws in order for them to make money. That wasn't the point. There's a holiness to worshiping God, and they mixed the world with their, with their, their faith and with their God, and they made it this unholy amalgam of grossness. And Jesus was like, nah, this has no place in my temple, so he casts them out. He says, nah, this is not what it's about. Jesus is not okay about corruption and worship. And we have to keep God holy. He set apart. Well, after he cleans out the, the, this area, which would have been in the, in the area of where the, the Gentiles would have been, this, this uh, marketplace, this money-changing area, to be in the, the area where the Gentiles could be, you have a couple Greeks come up, and they want to see Jesus. And it's very strange. Read about in John 12, and it says, now there were some Greeks among those who went to worship at the festival. These would be God-fearing Greeks. They weren't Jewish, but they recognized the God of Israel. And so they were there to worship. They saw the Messiah was there. They would like to talk to him. And so they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida and, and Galilee, with a request. They said, sir, we would like to see Jesus. And Jesus' reply is very strange. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds, which if you read that, you recognize he did not answer the Greek's request. What is this all about? In fact, he goes on and he talks about unless we die, there's not going to be new life in us. I think the Greek's request showed Jesus that his time had come. Right? He had, his, his ministry just to the house of Israel was ending and the ministry that was going to expand to the ends of the world ha- would have to begin. But that couldn't start yet until he was crucified. And so he says, now the hour has come. It was a signal for him. And so his climax of his ministry was about. And, uh, and so we find that uh, he says his soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? I love how Jesus is like, should I say, I know this is going to be lousy. Should I ask God to not do this? Of course not. For it's this very reason that I came. So, Father, glorify your name. An amazing thing happened. Then a voice from heaven that everybody could hear said, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. I'm going to do something in you, Christ. <laughs> right? And then I'm going to do something later, which, of course, the resurrection, which is pretty awesome. And, of course, the people hear this. This is the third time God speaks to people in the large crowd, and this time in the temple, Jesus has been three times now uh, validated from the voice of heaven itself, which you think would be pretty good. Uh, and so the crowds then respond to Jesus, right? They hear this, they hear Jesus' teaching, they've seen everything he's done, and, and even that, he performs even a few more miracles in that. But we read, even in this, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Now understand this, that evangelism is a work of God. That he draws us, his Holy Spirit has got to be somehow in it. Like If you think you're going to convince somebody to follow him, or you think that, that there are skeptics out there that you have the brain, that you're just going to have all the right answers, and eventually you're going to win them over, for some people there's never going to be enough faith. There, there's never going to be enough evidence. For some people there's just not going to ever be enough. They are not going to believe, and that's hard. We don't know who they are. And I think it's cool that even God knew this, and he was there amongst them. And he showed them all of the signs. Right? And he, Jesus goes on, he said, this fulfills the prophets. Because if you would have seen Jesus' ministry as, as a rational person, you would say, there is nobody in their right mind who would not have followed him right then. 
If you saw a guy raising people from the dead, casting out demons, walking on water, stopping, you know, storms, making bread sandwiches out of nothing, right? If you did saw all this, you'd be like, man, this guy's special. But a lot of people still wouldn't believe. And Jesus said, well, even though it doesn't make rational sense to us in our human thinking, he said it does fulfill the prophets. You know, Isaiah 6, Isaiah 53 says God's given them eyes, but they can't see. And he's given them ears, but they cannot hear. Understand this, that, that God does give us all eyes, and he gives us all ears, and he gives us all brains. But he's not going to let the faithless see his goodness. For those who would just reject him, who would never turn to him, they don't get to enjoy the goodness. They miss the whole point. All they see is sandwiches and a nice sideshow. But God has something more, doesn't he? And for those of us who come to God in faithfulness, those of us who want to know him and see him, we see more than just the miracles. We see the God that's behind all those miracles, but he's amongst us. And that's why in John 42 it says, yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. He was convincing a lot of people. For those who just would be willing to listen, willing to see, he revealed himself. And the crazy thing is, it says, even though they believed in him, they didn't say anything because they were terrified of the consequences of the religious leadership who were there to persecute Jesus. It was a real deal. And so that was uh, Monday. It was a long day. And so after that day of cursing trees and casting out, you know, money changer things and talking to people about how you want to have life, you have to die. And if he was going to come and do that, he heads back to, to Bethany. And then the next day, he gets up early in the morning, and then we have the withered fig tree and a lesson on faith, right? So he comes across that fig tree the next morning, and uh, it, was all, it was all dried up from the roots, right? It died like overnight, which is faster than Roundup. And he does this, and, and Peter sees this tree as they're walking by it, and he's like, hey, look, Rabbi, that tree you cursed is withered. And he's shocked by this, and you have to wonder, you know, because he had seen dead people raised, but I think maybe he thought it was kind of like a figurative kind of thing. But he walks by, he's like, you, you did that. And Jesus said, yeah, I did. Have faith in God, man. If you, if you ask him for something, you're going to receive it. Right? He's powerful. He can move mountains. He can kill a fig tree. And he goes on, he says, therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you will Believe you have received it, and it will be yours. Now, this is not name it and claim it. And a lot of people have used this in the past to do that, and that's silly. Because I could, with all faith, say, you know, Lord, turn this water into a beautiful cup of coffee just for me. And it doesn't happen. Why? Because Jesus never asked us to pray our will. Right? He says, how to pray? Your will be done. Right? But I want you to know this. If God wants to move a mountain in your life, and, and he's in, he says, right, I want to move that mountain in your life, and you pray it, that mountain will move. It will move. There is nothing impossible for God. That's the whole point. It's not about you. It's about him. And he is a powerful God, and he is present. And then he goes on. Jesus says, you know, but if you want to have this amazing power, this ability to, to have communion with me, that you're going to see my will done in your life with like, you're going to see the impossible happen. Make sure that you're forgiving one another because your heavenly father forgave you. 
And that reminds us of why we even get to talk to God. Why is it that you could even ask him for something? Because Jesus forgave you of your sins. That's what gives us the audacity to walk up before the throne of God and ask him for silly things. That's why he loves us, because we're his children, because of what he's done. So since God has forgiven us, if we're going to go to prayer, we're going to ask God to do something, let's make sure that we're not holding things against other people. That's what Jesus stresses. So after this, Jesus then gets into the, the temple and uh, he's challenged by the chief priests and the elders. In fact, this day was a very challenging day for Jesus because all day long he was challenged by different groups. And it starts up with the guys up top. And they're upset with Jesus because the day before he stopped their money-making business. He's cast out all of the, the money changers, which if you're like, they're like, what are you doing? So they go up to Jesus, the chief priests and, and all those, the, the chief elders and those that are in the, the top level of the authorities. And they, they said, by what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you the authority to do this? Which is a natural question, right? And Jesus knows what's, what's in their heart, and he says, all right, I'll, I'll answer that for you, but first, you need to answer me this. By what authority did, did John baptize? Was it from heaven's authority or earth's? And John the Baptist, because Jesus was baptized by John, and it was well known that John the Baptist said Jesus is the Messiah. And so if John was from heaven, Jesus would be like, well, clearly you've even said it yourself. I came from heaven. That's the authority. And if they said he came from earth, then basically the authority are saying, yeah, John the Baptist, who everybody in our whole culture recognizes was a prophet of God, we're saying isn't. And they would show themselves to be faithless and the charlatans that they were. So they get together in an unholy huddle, and they're like, what do we do? And they're like, well, we can't answer this. Darn it, Jesus. And so they go up to Jesus, and they, they say, well, well, we can't answer that. And Jesus said, well, that's fine. Well, neither am I going to answer your question either. Oh, Jesus. So then he challenges the authorities. The, the Herodi Herodians came up, and they challenged him next. And the Herodians, along with the Pharisees, uh, got together on this one, and they were not allies. They didn't like each other. Like the Herodians were like the secular Jewish people, right? They were all about the, the Herod, the was in power. They liked working with the Romans. They liked having the good life in that, right? The Herodians were, were kind of the secularists, and the Pharisees were on the other side and like extremely religious ones, but they hated Jesus together. Uh, so they were like, how are we going to trick him? So they said, here's the deal. We're going to put him into a bind where he can't make both of us happy. So they asked Jesus, is it right for a person, for, for one of your followers, to pay taxes? Because if Jesus said no, Right? The Pharisees would be like, yes, we don't have to pay taxes. But the Herodians are like, well, now you're an insurrection, right? So we're, you're going to get killed. And if Jesus said, yeah, you got to pay taxes, then, you know, then the Herodians are like, yes, we get our money. And then all the Pharisees, and there was a lot of religious people in the temple, and they would be like, oh, Jesus is just a sellout. So they think they put him into an impossible situation, a checkmate. But not so much because Jesus said, hey, uh, take a look. Give me one of your coins. And they're like, all right. And he said, all right, whose pictures are on there? And they're like, well, that's Caesar's picture. And he's like, uh-huh. Yes, it is. And so he goes on. He says, give back to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God. And then I love that last part. And they were amazed at him. They're like, well, we didn't see that coming. <laughs> and he goes on then. And so the Sadducees are up next. And they're like, all right, let's go get Jesus. Took down the chief guys took down the Herodians and the Pharisees on that one. Uh, so the Sadducees 
were the religious liberal elites, right? They were very well studied. They had a lot of power and a lot of wealth and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, but they also didn't believe in this hocus pocus stuff like miracles and God working amongst people. I mean, really, the Bible's not supposed to be read like that, right? That's what they think. You can't actually believe what it says. It's all moral truths-ish, right? So this whole idea of raising from the dead, ah, that's for those, you know, those ignorant monkeys, right, that believe the dumb stuff. But they knew that they were better than that, right? That, so this is their group, obnoxious. So they go up to Jesus, and they're like, and I'm sure at their Sadducee colleges that they have this great thing that they would talk about how stupid everyone was, and they would use this illustration. And they'd be like, let's say the law of Moses said that if a woman gets married to a, to a guy, and then he dies before they have a kids, that his brother has to have a kid with her. They have to get married, and he has to have a child for the brother that was dead. So they're like, so let's just say that happens. So you have this guy, this gal marries his brother, and then he dies, and they don't have a kid. And so she marries his other brother. And that second brother also dies, no kid. Third brother dies, no kid. Fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh. And then she dies. Jesus, tell us this. Whose wife is she? I mean, in the resurrection, if it's true, she can't be married to him all. So which one is she? And Jesus is fantastic because of these these foolish, snobbish, obnoxious people Jesus says, you, are you not an heir because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God? Yeah. Yeah, you silly little deadheads. <laughs> when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. And if you're like, what on earth does that mean? That's the point. We don't know. But we know there's a resurrection of the dead. We don't know so much. And these guys were talking about stuff they had no idea about. He was like, you're a bunch of fools. He doesn't qualify this. He doesn't have to explain it. He just has to show them that they are ignorant. And then he goes on to say, you know what? But your own scriptures teach you how ignorant you are. Because in Exodus, a book that you guys actually do read, and you think about the burning bush, and you think that must actually happen. God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac of Jacob. Not I'm the God of the people who were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The ones that are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as though they're still there. And he said, so see, very much, that God is the God of the living, not of the dead. He says, and you guys are in serious error. Well, the Sadducees went away because they were pretty much shellacked. And then he gets challenged by the Pharisees themselves. And so the Pharisees have been trying to get Jesus all this time. The chief priests, the elders the Herodians, the Sadducees, nobody could get Jesus. They're like, we got to do the job, guys. We got to get up, do this. So they get together, they get some lawyers of the law, all that kind of stuff, try to figure it out, and they come up with a question. They're going to ask Jesus, one that was asked earlier, but um, for whatever reason, must have forgot it. And they ask Jesus this, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus says, all right, this is it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because all the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Now, it goes back to the fact that they were trying to trap Jesus into, like, looking at just little tiny verses and saying, which of all these hundreds of laws that we have should, should we say is the most important? Because you said, well, we shouldn't commit murder. And they're like, oh, so you're fine with adultery? Because that's how it would work. And he says, no. He goes back to the very base. And this was actually Shema. This was, goes back to, to Deuteronomy 6. The Jewish people would, would say this every single day for prayer, right? They say, uh, you know, 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, with all your strength. Something that they would be very familiar with. And he says that's the heart of it. Every law, everything that the prophets talked about were to help us love God, right? So who cares if you don't murder? If you hate God, do you think not murdering is going to make him happy if you hate God? But the reason that we don't murder is because people are made in God's image. And God loves every child, every person, even if we don't. So he teaches us the very heart of it. And this amazing thing is this Pharisee who asked this question, this, this religious lawyer, he was honest. And he said, you know what, Jesus? That's a good answer. That's right. That, that this is the way that it should be, that we're supposed to love God with everything that we are. And then Jesus goes up and he says, he saw that this man had answered wisely and he said to him, you know, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Now, even those that were his critics, Jesus can handle our criticism. He's looking for a willing heart, right? And I love this last part, though. After all of that, no one dared ask him questions. Nobody left, <laughs> right? Basically, all of them were like, well, we can't, uh, can't get Jesus. So then he's uh, Jesus then goes and he challenges the religious leaders. He goes on the offense, and he begins, and he says to them, is, uh, how is it written uh, that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies at your feet. Then if David calls him Lord, how can be a son? Now, what he's answering here is the question the Pharisee would say is, how can you be calling yourself God and also the son of David? Because David was a man and God is not. And David says, your own scriptures in, in Psalm 110, David himself, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, my son, right, is also my Lord, is also God. And he shows them that, that the incarnation is something that is, is necessary in Scripture. But after showing them that very simple thing, that Jesus is legitimate and he's not in violation of the word, and he has been validated by the prophets and even King David himself through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he gives three warnings against religious, the, the religious liber uh, leadership at the time. And the first one is he, he tells them that, hey, listen, don't follow these guys because they're hypocrites. They, they, they don't practice what they preach they talk about righteousness but then they live these lives they, they they you know they'll sell out a widow's house so they can get a few you know extra dollars but then they go into the temple and talk about how kind of benevolent they are to the widows right so don't don't follow them because they're not they're not uh, they don't have integrity right they, they they're hypocrites and he goes on to show, that he says, the religion really is just for show. They're doing it just because they like the honor. They like to have the tassels. They like to have nice seats at the, you know, the dinner table. They like people to say, oh, good rabbi, right? They like those things. And so this is what they're into. They're not there to please God. They're there to gain glory for themselves. And then he goes on and he says, and listen, don't, you don't need to follow them because they're not better than any of you. Right? Th that they're not really better than anybody else. He said, God really wants to know you. He wants you. And, and after he warns the people, the crowds, to say, listen, these guys are, not, are leading you the wrong way, he then gives them a seven-fold indictment on the religious leaders, which is probably that area in Scripture, if you want to read Jesus, like this is the part that you see that there is a lion, not just a lamb in Jesus. He's like, woe to you, Pharisees, you hypocrites, you brood of vipers, you awful snakes. And he goes through and he gives them seven things or seven woes of, of what's going to happen to them if they continue on their path. And the first one, he says, you shut the door of heaven on people, so heaven's door is shut to you. 
right? He goes on, he says, you're teaching people uh, uh, how to f- how to be disciples of hell, and which means that you also are a disciple of hell. You're actually building the wrong kingdom. And he goes on to say that you're blind guides. You have no idea where you're going, but you're not just killing yourselves and not walking off a cliff. You're causing the nation to follow you off of that cliff, and God is going to hold you responsible for that. And he goes on and says, hey, in fact, you missed the whole point of what this is all about. You know, you, you, you instead of loving God, you follow all these stupid little laws to the point of hurting other people and God. You strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel, which is one of the best mental pictures. And he says, you know, but you know, you look good in flesh. You look nice up there as you're praying and all your fancy stuff, right? You look good to everybody on the outside, but God sees it inside. You're full of decay. You know you're dead in here. You're like a whitewashed tomb, beautiful on the outside, full of corruption on the inside. And he says, and really, if we look at your character, you're the ones who murdered the prophets. People just like you murdered the prophets before, and you're going to murder me. So you're murderers, and God will hold you accountable. And so he said that you are forfeiting God's grace in exchange for his judgment. This is an important section. It's not fun to read. So understand that God doesn't toy around with righteousness. It matters how we approach him. And that you can't look religious enough to please God. Do you know him? Do you love him? That's what he's looking for. After this, he leaves and he goes out to the Mount of Olives. And he's walking probably back up to Bethany. And we call this the Olivet Discourse because it sounds cool. But also, it's because he was on the Mount of Olives. He was leaving. And uh, as they're leaving the city, two of his disciples, they're looking at all of the cool big buildings that are there. And if anyone's been to Israel and you'll see like they've even the ruins, you're like, wow, yeah, there's the commenting on this amazing temple and all this. And uh, and Jesus says to them, do you see all these things? I truly I tell you, not one stone will be left on the other. Everyone will be thrown down. And they're like, what? Because it's huge. And they were still building it at the time. And it was massive and beautiful. And the disciples like, well, when is this going to happen? Because I imagine they're readjusting their time frame. Because they thought Jesus was coming into town just like everybody else to set up his Messiahship, right? That's where they thought. Now Jesus says all this stuff's going to be knocked down. They're like, well, that's going to be a heck of a war. So when is this going to happen? Like, when are you going to come in power? So they ask him this. They said, when is this going to happen? Tied into what are the signs then of the end? Because they tied those two things together. And when are you coming in power? And, uh, and so Jesus answers basically those two questions at the same time. And he doesn't tell them there's going to be a huge gap in between them. Well, he kind of gives a hint to it. But we find, though, that the first thing when Jerusalem fell was 80, 70, 40 years after what Jesus talked about this. And the events took place just like Jesus said. But there's also events that Jesus talks about and the Olivet Discourse about his return in power. And those are events that haven't taken place yet. I don't know if you've noticed that. But Jesus hasn't come back yet. So here's the signs that Jesus said to look for. He says, these are the things that you're going to look for. He talks about another place. He says it's like, um, like when you have a dead carcass out there, you're going to see vultures kind of circling in the sky. Now, you can see vultures, and they don't tell you exactly where the dead body is. You just know there's a dead body around because you see vultures circling around. He says, these are the vultures you're going to be looking for. If you start seeing these circle, you're like, hey, maybe there's a dead body around. All right? So here they are. 
cults and false messiahs, people coming in his name, saying, I'm the Messiah, doing all that kind of stuff. You can see lots of the regional and national wars, nation against nation and all that kind of stuff. I mean, wars and rumors of wars and all that. Strange signs or troubles in the sky and the sea. So that's going to happen. People are going to be terrified by these things, right? There's going to be earthquakes, floods, famines, wildfires. Basically, nature's going to go haywire, right? And then there's going to be local and global persecution for believers. We're gonna be all over the world, Christians are going to be hated and murdered because of their faith. And then you have also, in spite of all of this, something strange. And here's a little bright spot for us. The gospel is preached in all nations, which is pretty cool. And then he says there's also going to be a growing and pervasive wickedness in culture that you'd be able to look and everybody's be like, we are going the wrong way <laughs> in culture. Instead of going closer to God, culture is working away from God. And the love of many will grow cold because of the wickedness that we see in that generation. And then he says, finally, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, then you're going to know, hey, things are getting serious. Right. And where do we find that? That's in uh, uh, Daniel. Right. So uh, it talks about that. So. This is what he says to look for, and if you see any of those things, you're like, hey, I see some vultures. Now, we're going to talk about some of those in a couple of months when I do a series called Here Comes the Sun, where we're talking about eschatology, but that's what we're talking about today. So, but I also want to go that Jesus tells us you're going to see these things, they're signs, but he also warns right after that, but about the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. What's the, so why tell us about these things? Well, he tells us when you see these things happen, don't get dismayed. Look up to heaven, know that, that your salvation is here. When the world seems like it's falling apart, when it seems like the enemy's winning, know that these things have to happen. Don't freak out. Because God wins, and he's coming back. So it's not to tell us, you're supposed to use these signs to predict his coming. We know he's coming back. And we don't know exactly when, but when you see these, he tells us so we can be encouraged, not dismayed. That's the point. And he goes on to give then a couple of parables to emphasize this. The first one he gives is the parable of ten bridesmaids. He says when, when Jesus comes back, he says it's going to be like, uh, there's, there's like these ten bridesmaids that are there, and they're waiting for the groom, and he's late because you know how grooms are. And it gets late at night, and they fall asleep, and then finally they hear he's coming, and then they wake up, and only five of them have enough lamp oil you know, to light their way. And so they're like, hey, to the other ones, give us your oil. And they're like, if we give you our oil, we're not going to have enough. So you go back and take care of yourself. So then they do. And the bridegroom comes, and he takes those five, and he takes them to his house, and then the other five come back, and they're already gone. They're like, oh, dang it, we missed it. So they go to his house, they knock on the door, and he says, I don't know who you are. Point, be ready, right, no matter how long it takes. If that's not a little bit of a hint for us that maybe there would be a separation in time, be ready no matter how long it takes. Next one says it's also like this, like uh, the kingdom of heaven, when it comes back, it's like a, a guy who's got this gold, right? And he gives it out to his servants, and he's like, I got I'm going to give one of my servants five bags of gold, and I'm going to give another one two bags of gold, another one gets a whole bag of gold, and then I'm going to, he says, I'm going to leave, but when I come back, I want you to have done something that with that. So the first one, had got the five, he's like, I got five bags of gold. So he invests it, doubles the money, and when the master returns, he's got ten bags of gold, and he gives it to his master, and he's like, whew, well done, dude, 100%, right? Very good. Two bags of gold, same thing. But then there was a guy that had one bag of gold, he had that one, and he brings it to his master, and it's just one little bag of gold, all dusty and dirty because he buried it. And he says, I buried this because I know that you are a horrible guy, and you, you just ask us to do horrible things, like make you money and stuff. And, uh, and the king's like, or the, the rich man's like, yeah, you, you, if you thought I was so wicked because I was asking you to make money for me, you should at least uh, put this in the bank, and I could have got some like, 
petty interest or something because you didn't do anything. You're a horrible, wicked servant. And so he said, get him out of here. He's fired. And he says, take that bag that he has and give it to the one who has 10, right? And they were like, but he's already got 10. Now he's 11. He's like, that's right. Because to those who have much, much will be given. And those who don't have anything, even what the little they have will be taken away. And here's the point that he's giving us with this is that we've got to be productive. Until he comes back, our job isn't to be looking over like, is he back yet? Is he back yet? Our job is to put his stuff to work, right? We're supposed to be productive for the kingdom. So when he comes back, there'll be a reward because, no, he's going to come back and there's going to be accountability for every one of us. Third one, he says, this isn't a parable, but it falls right in there. It's like Jesus is making a point. He says, when I come back in power uh, and the angels are all there, going to gather him before me and I'm going to separate everybody into two groups for who say they follow me. And, and the one group that say they follow me, they're going to be like goats and the other one to be like sheep. And the goats are going to be like, hey, we're going to get a big reward. And, and he's just like, uh-uh. Uh, I, I, I don't know you guys. And they're like, but we did all these amazing things for you, right? We had like television shows and started colleges and all these amazing things in your name. He's like, but I didn't know you. And so they miss out on the kingdom. And on the other side, there's people and they're like, oh, no, because those are all the fancy ones that did all the big things. And these guys are like, what happened to them? It's going to be bad for us. And Jesus said, you know, when I was poor, when I was weak, when I was in prison, when I didn't have anything, you came to visit me. You're going to have a great reward. You come to my kingdom. And they're like, when on earth did we do that? But you have to wonder about their judgment. Because <laughs> the king says, they're like, we're in. But I think they were like, when did, when did we ever do that? And he said, whenever you did this for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you've also done those very same things for me. What's the point there? Be faithful to know Jesus. I don't think Jesus is all so impressed with all the big ministries that we start if you do not know him. And if you know him, I think God is more impressed with the little acts of faithfulness that cause us to love him. And also because of that, we love one another than he is if we have some mega church, beautiful, pristine ministry that is heartless and soulless. No God, no Christ. Well, after this, the Sanhedrin plots to murder Jesus, right? Well, actually, probably when this was all happening, Jesus was leaving town. They're probably looking out the window. They meet together at Caiaphas' house, which you'll get to see the ruins of if you go to Israel. It's pretty fantastic. And you're there, and you're like, wow, you can see the Garden of Gethsemane from there, and the Mount of Olives. They probably are watching Jesus leave, and they meet there, and they're looking at him. They're like, well, how do we kill him? Because if you can't beat him, you kill him, right? That's, that's what the saying is. I think that's how it goes. So they, uh, they're like, well... We have to arrest this dude and kill him, but we can't do it now because he shellacked us in front of everybody, and he's got a lot. And if we arrest him now and kill him over Passover, then there's going to be a riot. So they plot to kill Jesus, but now their plot's at the wrong time. And that's significant because twice already Jesus had kept people from killing him by just walking through the crowd because it wasn't his time, but his time was coming, and now his murderers are like, yeah, but not now. But Jesus has an answer for that, and we find it happens a little bit next the very next thing is jesus makes it back to bethany he has uh, dinner at a guy's named simon the leper's home now i'm just guessing that now simon is a healed leper <laughs> doesn't say in scripture but i i'm just assuming that he receives a miracle and there's lazarus's hometown it says martha's serving dinner because martha's awesome right and as they're laying out there and they're having this great dinner mary comes in and she breaks open an alabaster jar of perfume and uh, pours it over Jesus' feet. Now, this was not the first time this happened. Uh, there was a time earlier 
that Jesus was in Galilee, uh, that in, in Luke 7, where you had a woman, a sinful woman, who had been freed from demons, right, came and she broke a jar of, of, of perfume and poured it on Jesus' feet. Uh, and something very, very similar, but totally different. Uh, this happened later. This is Mary. Mary was not known as a sinful woman. She was well-loved and, and, and honored by the people that were around her. Uh, and she anointed his feet for his burial. And that's significant. Now, what we find here is, uh, I was like, what's an alabaster jar look like? That's what it looks like. Beautiful, beautiful stone. And that's what those little perfume things would look like. And she opens it up, and it had pure nard in there, which is supposed to smell good, but I think stinks. And <laughs> but you'd put it on a dead body, of, you know. But it was it was very expensive, and she she pours it out on his feet. And it does say that. And in fact, Jesus even pe- mentions this because uh, the, the disciples, especially Judas, get on her case and say, "Well, you should have sold that and given the money to the poor." And it says in John, but Judas really didn't care about the poor. He was just a lousy thief because he held the, the money. But regardless, Jesus says, "Leave her alone." This was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. That, that Mary understood. Jesus kept saying, I'm going to die. And he didn't say it in, in like cryptic terms. He's like, I'm going to be handed over the, to the Gentiles. They're going to crucify me. I'm going to die. I'm going to be dead for three days. I'm coming back. And all of his disciples heard this. And every time it says that he said it, they were like, we don't know what he means. Mary, I'm sure, had no idea what it meant. Like she couldn't wrap her mind around what Jesus was talking about. How could this Messiah die? But if he said he was going to, he was going to. And so she honors him and anoints his body for burial. Think about the faith. And then this woman gets to be one of the first to see Jesus as he's resurrected. Talk about a hero of faith as she is. Judas, however, not a hero of faith. In this very dinner, his heart grows cold. And and the Gospel of John says that he was overcome by Satan at this point and decided, I'm going to sell Jesus out. And so we see these two different disciples go in completely opposite directions. And because of Judas's betrayal, Jesus actually gets murdered on time. God's at work in all things. So what are the lessons we pick up from today's thing? First one is holiness matters. You read this text, first three days, God cares about holiness. Holiness is, is something that you just can't fake. It's something to be honest. Like, holiness means that there's, there are things that are special. They're set apart. They're separate. And one of those in our lives has got to be God. You cannot make God just another thing in your life, right? You understand that He is real, that God is sovereign. He is worshipped by angels. There's a day coming that we're going to see Him face to face. But if we would see Him now in our state, we'd be obliterated. He is an amazing, powerful God. And it is a terrifying thing to fall into His hands if you are not ready, right? He is, he is powerful beyond measure. He is it's infinitely wise, right? He foresees all things, right? Even before it happens, he can make anything happen. And we have to recognize in our lives that God cannot be something like, like, a, like church is some kind of elective in our weekly schedule. Like, well, should I, should I worship God this week? Well, I don't know if there's not anything else. God is holy, and it matters to him. And it matters that this space is holy, that we don't turn this into anything other than worshiping God. It's what's called a worship service, that we focus our energies and our focus and everything here is to to bring Him glory. Sunday is not a show, and it shouldn't be, right? Discipleship is not a game. It is a way of life. It is the way to life. One thing I think we see in this first thing that it matters that we 
we remain a holy people to a holy God. And that he's holy purposes for us. And we don't mix those with everything else. The second thing we, we recognize here is that integrity matters. Jesus really doesn't, if you say all the right things, but you do all the wrong things, Jesus is not impressed. God is not impressed. You could have a PhD in, in Bible doctrine, but if your life is filled with depravity, if you don't follow him in your, in, in your beliefs and your life and in your lifestyles, if you're not pursuing Jesus, it doesn't matter. We have to reckon we're not going to be perfect, but we do need to, to really own what we believe. If God is sovereign, let's follow him. Let, let's live as those who are redeemed. Let's pursue him with everything we are together. Let's live our lives as though he's real, the Holy Spirit is amongst us, that Jesus is coming back. The third thing we find is that worship matters. We worship with whatever our lives revolve around. And Jesus is the only one that is worthy of our worship. He is God who came to be with us. It matters what we worship. Look at the sheep and the goats. They both called Jesus Lord, but the goats missed it because they worshiped all of the, uh, the show. They weren't centering their life on Jesus. They were still just doing things for themselves. Center our lives on Jesus. Center everything on him. I mean, you see the difference between Mary and Judas as well, too, right? So make sure that we're worshiping God. Well, I guess that's my time. <laughs> so if you have a connection card, let's pull it out. And let's uh, make some next steps, because we don't want to hear truth, we want to live truth. So the first thing that you have on there, I'm going to challenge you this week, is why don't you memorize Matthew 16, 24. And this is the 11th week that you have the opportunity to make that commitment. If you have memorized it, wonderful. Now start to meditate on it. Pray it in your prayers. Ask God what it means for you to be denying yourself. What does it mean for you to be picking up your cross? What does it mean for you to follow him? Also, I'm going to challenge you, why don't you read Matthew 19 through 20. You're going to hear a lot of the things that I talked through today. There's a lot of stuff I didn't cover because there's a ton of that happened on, on the first three days of, of Holy Week. Also, I'm going to ask you this. Would you accept uh, in, in this, and actually I have the wrong things up there, but um, as you go into this, we need to be praying as a church, right? We need to be making sure that as a church that we are going to God and making sure that, that He is at center of everything that we are, everything that we do. But, uh, and so what I'd like you to do is take some time this week and just ask God to show you, right? Where is he in your life, right? Are you centering on him? The last thing is on September 19th, that's a kind of a big Back to Church Sunday. I want you to be praying for that as well. Why? Because it's National Back to Church Sunday. We're going to be reaching out to some of our friends and family that have been away for a long time and, and trying to restore back. There's a lot of people in our community who still don't know who Jesus is. And we want to make sure that we're connecting with them. So would you be joining me in praying that God will do a work beginning on September 19th, that he'll be the people that you want to invite, they'll be open to receiving that invite as well, that, that God will do something that only God can do. All right, I've made you, asked you to make commitments. Please uh, take those. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have a song of commitment. At the end of that, please take your connection cards along with your offering. Put it in that box at the back of the room. I would appreciate it. All right, let's pray. Father God, you are the God of all creation. You are the Lord of everything, and you are good. You're worthy of all of our praise and everything beyond that. But Lord, we have what we have to offer, and that's just ourselves. We bring ourselves to you. 
denying ourselves, taking up our cross, really committing to following you. So, Father, do your introspective gaze in our heart. We ask your Holy Spirit to speak to us. How is it that you want us to, to follow you this week? And give us the courage and the faithfulness to do so. These next steps that we commit to, may they draw us close to you. Our tithes are offering, may you use it to build your kingdom. Father, even these gifts we give to Balak and Luba, may it be a sign of your provision for them so that you receive the glory. Father, we pray all this in the powerful name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.